Chapter Twenty One of White Rose of Weary Leaf by Violet Hunt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty One. The Cockney nurse approached Edith Dand as that lady, in pursuance of her scheme of long-winded and elegant recovery, lay booked and flowered and scented on the sofa in her luxurious bedroom, with its double door and small antechamber between, that isolated her from the rest of the house as if she had been a favourite sultana. The nurse was that pitiful compromise by way of being a lady. Her face was warped and twisted out of all simplicity by adherence to supposed fashionable standards, and deference to a gentility strangely at odds with the customary abuses of the trade. "'Excuse me, miss, I beg pardon, madam, but you do look so ridiculously young. I found this paper caught in the upper twigs of the privet-bush by the garden-door.' "'What? Whose is it?' "'It has no particular beginning, Mrs. Dand, but I can see the expression, Dear Amy, about halfway down, which leads me to suppose it is a letter.' "'Dear Amy?' "'Well, you must give her letter back to Miss Stevens, then,' Edith Dand said, in tones of disappointment. "'I think you ought to see it first, Mrs. Dand.' "'I don't read other people's letters.' "'One isn't quite sure it is a letter, Mrs. Dand.' "'Well, read a teeny bit out to me, and I'll judge. It can't be anything important. Begin just anywhere. It is to Erina, probably. Or perhaps—I didn't think Amy had a lover here.' Her thoughts flew to Mr. Johnson, and she smiled knowingly. The nurse cleared her throat and began, her small eyes scintillating with the consciousness of devastating knowledge. "'I am quite good, dear Amy, but I cannot help having my thoughts. Sometimes, as I sit by you on that long garden seat that you have banished me to the very other end of, I take to watching you. You look like a white, long-stemmed flower.' that if a man were to clutch and crush to him, he would simply break and render of no avail. What would you do if I kissed you? Would you shut your eyes or screw them up, as you always do when you are trying something difficult or disagreeable? You are attractive in your unconsciousness of appeal, so weakly, unknowingly feminine, that I, who have vowed to let you grow on, quietly, reputably, cleanly, in your Artemis-like grace and calm, I suddenly find myself descending to the styes and slums of a man's secret mind, and there I am, basely wondering if you are deceiving me, and do, actually, hold the key to all knowledge. Why is your speech so open, and your glance so private, so elusive? Perhaps, beloved, you are not so much Artemis as Alcmena. That old Jupiter of a Sir Mervyn, Mrs. Dan stopped her ears theatrically. "'You needn't read any more, nurse. It's a disgusting letter, whoever wrote it. Let me look at it. I may know the handwriting.' She did recognize it. She fell back on her cushions with aggravated violence. "'Brandy!' she murmured automatically, and drank it with the fierce concentration of the habitual abstainer. Then she raised her head proudly. "'Put that letter into an envelope and address it to Miss Stevens.' The woman did so. Now bring me my child. The nurse flew from the room, and Edith Dand lay back on her satin pillows and murmured, The tragedy of my life! I am left alone with the tragedy of my life. She said no more aloud, but mentally repeated the tragic ringing sentence a third time. It was like a raft that she clung to in this shipwreck of her vanity. 
Here it was at last, her husband's infidelity. She had not expected it, yet she had awaited it long, like the old lady, her burglar. She had been buoyed up by her intense conviction of its impracticability, as the householder relies on his bolts and bars against the villainous centre-bit. And at last it was here. She must grapple with it. Enfeebled by illness, she must do the best that could be done, for herself and for her husband. But it was very hard, for she was by way of loving the monster that threatened her peace. When the slimy creature raised its head, it bore the features of Amy, her whilom good angel, Amy, whose strange, enigmatic personality had become an indispensable part of her surroundings. In truth, she did not know how to be angry with Amy, the villain, the surplanter, the destroyer. Such big words hardly suited Amy. Amy was too mean, too humble, little more than a servant, after all. Edith began to feel she was doing her too much honour. Why, she had only been got into the house in the beginning as a sop to the first wife's spoilt daughter, whom it was the stepmother's interest to propitiate in easy ways. Then, when Dulce married, they had foolishly kept Amy on, they had not quite liked to turn the poor girl adrift, and there was no denying that she was useful. Mrs. Dand blamed herself for becoming so familiar with an insinuating middle-class young woman, with no references, no connections, but with her way to make, her bread to butter, and her passions to gratify. It was doubtless part of Amy's plan from the very first that the mistress of the house should become intimate with her. It made it so much easier for her to flirt with the master. The blind matron had stupidly fallen in with the maid's plan. No, on the whole, Edith fancied that Amy was too cold to care for flirtation for its own sake. It was her craving for power that had led her into error. She was a manager born, a martinet, from the storeroom to the library, every department of the household must sooner or later submit and come within the circle of her control. It was merely in pursuance of the strongly implanted grabbing instinct that she had raised her eyes and attempted Jeremy's love. Jeremy was far too important, and too nice to be let alone. Then she had been caught in her own toils, for Jeremy had conquered and not fought. He never really did make love, with effort like other men, but relied solely on his fascination, the surest, safest way. Edith hardly knew how she herself came to be his wife. He had never actually proposed, but had just signified his willingness that marriage should be talked of between them. But it had seemed inevitable the moment he had condescended to give the matter his attention. Amy, like everyone else, had been attracted by the splendid male, and had not rested till she had practised on his affability and got him to flirt with her and write her letters like this. The kind of letter implied the kind of woman, a sly creature who never did look anyone fairly in the face. Those wretched sidelong glances out of a pair of quite mediocre eyes that did not bear looking into. A low predatory type of flirt, a woman with no spirituality in her nature, in spite of her mouth, which gave her, perhaps, a better character than she possessed, inherited, probably, and soon to grow coarse. "'Yes, I can disentangle it all now,' the wife mused, drying her eyes. "'My poor dear Jeremy, 
one must not forget that he is a man and not a disembodied spirit he is of course subject to a man's horrid passions that we women need know nothing about amy answers to his lower nature she has simply allowed him to make her the outlet of it for i am convinced that he never would have allowed himself to write me a letter of that description even in the exciting days when he was courting me such a disgusting production that i could not allow the nurse who seems a decent respectable woman to go on with it bringing in sir mervyn too my horror jeremy knows i won't stand any allusion to him from mamma or anybody no nice woman could permit herself to receive such a letter men will write them but there is no need for us to encourage that dreadful side she had unconsciously begun to rehearse her speech to amy her great speech she must of course speak to amy most seriously poor girl before she sent her away and read her such a lecture on social purity and the task of all good women in furthering it as amy would never forget she must give her some hints of conduct that would be useful to her in her next place she would descend into the depths of materialism she would wallow there for amy's good the pure to the impure amy would probably in consequence of kind management take a turn for the better and do very well in someone else's house she was certainly all right so far as the sordid details of the menage were concerned that was the worst of it mrs dand realized that she was going to dismiss on moral grounds the very best housekeeper a woman ever had very awkward one suffered for the right should she wait and look round for another housekeeper first that would be practical but immoral it would never do to have her about the house even another month no one must not allow personal considerations to influence one one must be strong she lay back languidly it was hard that this duty should fall on her the weakest who had but lately gone through a physical crisis of the first importance and produced a living son she had just given a child to this man who was spending his time in writing queer unusual morbid love-letters without beginning or end to another woman ah jeremy had not chosen his moment well surely mere considerations of gratitude for the discomfort and even peril she had undergone in his interests a son and heir might have prevailed on him to forego his low pleasures for a season while his poor wife was suffering for his sake but men refused to think of these things he had simply been worried by her danger not touched by her devotion and he had been so much and unavoidably left to himself at the time that was it poor jeremy it was her enforced absence from his side and inevitable withdrawal from their mutual pursuits that had been the cause of his backsliding she had hated having to be cross with jeremy and was delighted to have hit upon this excuse for him she had only one person left to be angry with now on that person must be poured all the vials of her wrath for it was plain enough how it had happened naturally she had not been with jeremy as much as usual she could not potter about the estate with him or take an interest in his collections or share long walks in the country he had in consequence been bored to death and had solaced himself with naughtiness like a child who teases the dog 
or plays with beggar-children, or empties watering-pots on its pinafore when it is left to play alone. He had fallen back on the society of Amy, the only other woman about the place who was under sixty. Amy had not been slow to see her advantage. She had at once pressed it and had succeeded in gaining an influence over him. Only a temporary influence, that a wife could blow away with a breath once she was about again. He could hardly admire Amy, plain, long-nosed Amy, without a tithe of Edith's beauty, beauty that he had always taken a pride in decking and fostering. He bought her lovely jewellery, and insisted on her wearing it with the right dresses, himself indicating the harmonies in every case. He had never given Amy jewellery. Amy's neck was always bare, and she hadn't a thing that even looked like a present. Here Mrs. Dan remembered a compliment that her mother's lover, old Sir Mervyn Diamond, though she hated him, she had remembered his words, had once paid her, "'Child, with that neck and figure, you should rule empires.' Well, she had not lost that figure, although she had borne two children. She had made some sacrifices of her immediate comfort to its preservation, even lately. One must consider one's body, the fair temple of the soul, and suffer for it if need be. Some women are reckless and let their figures go, but it should not be counted unto them for righteousness. Beauty has duties to itself. Her thoughts were drifting. She was doing too much thinking. That was wrong just now. There was no hurry. Amy had been with them for four years, and there was no harm done, and a great deal of good. All the horrid housekeeping taken off her hands. She would soon be downstairs again, and Amy's little game put an end to. Was that an old letter the nurse had read? How long had it been hanging in the privet bush? It was astonishing how lazy, how unenterprising she felt. She looked at her chronometer. It was six o'clock. She heard the crunching of the wheels of her husband's motor on the gravel below her window. He did not generally come round to the front. No matter, he would be in her room in a few seconds now. He always came straight up. Her warrior had returned, safe from the scuffle and fight of the day's work. He had won heroically through the long hours of moral squalor in the city office, situated deep in the dusty heart of Oldfort. People called Jeremy the king of Oldfort. He held the strings of everything. Such confidence did his chief, rich old Lord Gould, repose in his capable right-hand man. His wife realized only partially what the business day of her husband's was like. The exceedingly workable view of it had been well rubbed into his womenkind by Dand himself. They all knew that he fully expected to return, day after day, as it were, to a peaceful haven, a nest of singing birds. The ladies were to get all their quarrelling over before the toot of his horn, as he entered the park gate half a mile away could be heard. Edith was quite aware that she was expected to be very kind to her foredone knight of the money-bags, to unbuckle his armour, and metaphorically take his weary head in her lap. She had never failed to fill her post adequately. Then why give her an understudy? She had no need of one. She was perfectly equal to the position of soft, sympathetic, untroublesome chatelaine. Jeremy was a very good-tempered man. If you gave him his own way, and she had always done so, 
He always let her be nice to him, and he was nice to her. She had the softest hands in the world, he said, hands that were mesmeric and could almost cure a headache. He paid her many a measured compliment. He was au petit soin always, an admirable husband. Once jar him, however, and no one could tell what he might do. He had a bad temper, for all he was so gentle. Must she worry him the moment he came up, his heart bounding with pleasure at seeing her again, with complaints of his housekeeper? But he did not come up. The motor had trundled off to the garage long ago, or else she would have supposed he was talking to the man about it. It was late, too. He had been detained at the office. All the more reason to make haste to her. She began vaguely to realize what Amy had realized long ago, that for Jeremy, the wifedom that she represented, and domesticity in general, remained in utter abeyance till six o'clock, and that curtain lectures were a luxury which she must learn to forego, as they had gone completely out of fashion in the stress of modern business existence. Tiresomely, as circumstances had contrived to arrange themselves, it would have been sheer cruelty on a wife's part to insist on articulating her difficulties, or even her woes in the face of his fatigue. Edith had not, until to-day, had any very important matters to discuss with Jeremy, but she saw plainly enough that she would not be able to get at him to-night. All he wanted of her at this hour, all he would tolerate just now, were relays of trifling conversational items, a little music, and mild reference to his children and other fads. She must wait till next day. Next day he would be off again early, before she was up, and so it would go on, till the cycle of the week was completed. Then Sunday, the day of rest, more fads and soft conversation. He thus was enabled to evade every situation as it occurred. The office was a fine derivative. The man who used it in this sense was in no danger of losing his temper, and could well afford to be urbane. Looking back, she saw that this mutual attitude of theirs explained a great deal. It explained why they had been able to get through eight years of married life without a quarrel. She had never thought of this before. What a time Jeremy was in coming to her! She began to fret and fume. He had been in the house for quite half an hour. Where did he go when he came in? To Amy? Was it possible? Then she must really take some notice of it. Things could not go on like this. She must consult her mother, whose whole life had been, regrettably, one long series of divorce manquets. Lady Medrow had tried hard to get rid of her first husband, but in vain. The poor eager lady had had to wait till he died, to marry Sir Flaxley Medrow. Her experience might be of some service at this juncture, though of course Edith was not thinking of divorcing Jeremy. There was the personage whom they all called Jeremy's mother to be informed but hardly consulted. Of course she would take Jeremy's side, if not Amy's. So might Edith's own mother. No, no, her duty was clearly towards her own daughter, and she had plenty of good feeling, if a little haphazard in distribution. Someone knocked. Tremulously, Edith bade, Come in, and the door opened, revealing Amy, carrying the new baby, kindly but gingerly, because she did not love it. Oh, Amy, you! was all the mother could say. "'Why not me?' 
I don't know. Everything seems to come at once. I heard Jeremy below hours ago. Why don't you run down and welcome him? Amy might have realized that something was wrong, only that in spite of the volume of fateful meaning she tried to throw into it, Edith's voice would behave in the most natural manner. "'He comes home quite regularly every day,' said Amy, "'so I see no reason why I should treat him as if he had come back from Paris. "'It would be just the same if it were Vienna or St. Petersburg. "'I am quite hardened to travellers returning in this house. "'Here, take it.' "'She held out the baby. "'Nurse came to me and said you had asked for it. "'So I do. It, indeed. "'I want him to kiss. He is all I have now.' Why didn't Brown bring him herself? She seemed anxious that I should have an opportunity of dropping it. Why do you want to make an emotional excuse of the child? She asked scornfully, standing by the bed. You'll squeeze the life out of the poor little wretch if you don't take care. A mother's love can never hurt her child, Amy, do you think? I don't believe in kissing, as you know. Oh, don't you, said Edith Dand who had not the courage of her spite, and spoke in so low a tone that Amy failed to catch the words. "'Is there anything else I can do for you?' she asked at the door. "'Kindly tell my mother, Lady Medrow, that I want her.' "'Yes. Your mother, Lady Medrow, is busy writing her memoirs on the very best sermon paper.' "'Amy, I really cannot jest with you to-day. My head!' She had meant to say heart but something in her throat seemed to get directly in the way of any approach to an explanation with Amy. Besides, she had settled not to speak yet. She had a certain dread of loss of power, of the dissolution of strength that would be entailed by the dissipation of her knowledge. She took a childish pleasure in the temporary husbanding of her treasures of accusation, and the withholding of a statement that, when she chose to make the public free of it, could not but produce effects which might considerably alter the lives and the policy of all concerned. End of chapter 21 Read by Lisa Reichert